right, well, welcome to session four of the Apologetics of Jesus and Paul. My name is Joel Sedekes, and if you haven't done so yet, you might want to go back and check out sessions one through three to get a background and a little, uh, little bit more information on what we're talking about. We're talking about how the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul actually used apologetics in real time as recorded in the scriptures. And what we're doing is we're analyzing their approach. We're looking at some similar objections analogous to the ones that they faced. And then we're looking at how to handle those objections today in the same way that the Lord and the Apostle Paul did back in their day, again, as recorded in scripture. Now, if you don't feel like going back and watching sessions one through three, or you want to watch this one and and, uh, you figure you'll catch up on the other ones later, you need more of a refresher um, later on, that's okay because we're actually going to sort of reintroduce the three-step presuppositional method of apologetics that we've been talking about. We're going to reintroduce that tonight and kind of um, go back over that process. So uh, you, you won't be fully missing out if you don't go back right now. All right, so this is The Apologetics of Jesus and Paul, Session 4. As always, we've got guys watching backstage right now, and uh, they're going to be putting their writing down their questions or putting it in the chat. So guys, just a reminder, you can put that in the, um, the chat, or you can just record it for yourself on a piece of paper or whatever, and... Um, tap it into your phone. And then at the end, we'll come, we'll bring you out and we'll do Q and a, uh, if you don't know who I am or what the think Institute is, the think Institute is a teaching ministry based on the belief that no follower of Jesus Christ should ever get caught flat footed when asked what or why we believe. And so we're dedicated to the mission and vision of equipping believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. You can learn all about the think Institute and our discipleship wing, which this course is run through by simply going to thethink.institute, no.com.net or anything else. Thethink.institute is our website. You can go check it out right there. Now, today we are talking about the, the story, the account in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, called what I'm calling the tradition transgression. And uh, if you're looking on the um, the screen there, I just realized that there's a typo. It, it says transgression, but it should be transgression. That's just a good reminder that only uh, there is none good but, but God. Only Jesus is perfect. I'm certainly not. So there's evidence for it right there on the screen in case you had any doubts. Not that you did. But um, today's story is called The Tradition Transgression from Mark 7, 1 through 23. And now if you're watching this uh, on YouTube, you're looking and you're saying, well, there's a picture of food, lots of different kinds of food behind the text there. What is that food all about? Hmm, I'm glad you asked. Stay tuned because we're going to be talking a lot about food as we go and uh, the eating of food, the washing before we eat food, and what kind of foods are appropriate and acceptable for followers of Christ to eat. So we're going to be, um, we're going to be looking at food today. Which uh, So grab a snack and um, let's, let's get into it. First, a quick introduction to our story. Now, previously, previously on the apologetics of Jesus and Paul, Jesus uses presuppositional apologetics. We've seen that. We've seen him use essentially a three-part, three-step approach. We're going to go over those steps again in just a minute, but he's using presuppositional apologetics, which seeks to attack the 
presuppositions of the unbeliever and to show that the presuppositions don't match up with the conclusions, what they say they believe and what they actually believe don't actually line up. Uh, This is like, as I've said before, it's like a home inspector. If your worldview is like a home, it's like a home inspector going down into the basement and pointing out all the cracks in the foundation and saying, this house cannot stand. Now, the opponents of the Lord so far have mainly been Pharisees. And uh, today we're going to see there's another group that come along with the Pharisees. And then we're going to see Jesus actually pivot and address a totally different group. He's still going to use presuppositional apologetics and he's going to do it in in a very different way. So in this episode, we're going to see Jesus refute the Pharisees again and then adapt his approach for a, for an entirely different audience. And we're going to see how the Lord modifies his, his apologetic based on who he's talking to, depending on who he's talking to. Key questions I want us to think about in this session uh, as we go, hopefully questions we'll be able to answer tonight, are question one, how does Jesus modify his apologetic for a believing audience versus an unbelieving one? So that kind of gives you a little hint as to who the second group is he's going to be talking with. There's the scribes and the Pharisees in the one group, and then there's another group, uh, a group of believers he's going to be talking to. Question two, what different lesson did Jesus teach each audience? He taught one lesson to the Pharisees and the scribes and a totally different lesson to the group of believers, but the second lesson is going to build on the first lesson, and it's really ingenious how Jesus does this. You're going to see this and you're going to go, man, Jesus is the best apologist in the world. That was my reaction as I was preparing it. And um, I think you're going to have the same reaction. And then question three, what similar groups do we encounter today? And how can we answer them the way Jesus answered these two groups? So we're going to look at um, analogous groups, groups that uh, groups that are similar to the ones that Jesus addresses in this story. I almost don't like to use the word story because it sounds like, you know, you're telling stories. It sounds like like it's false, but of course it's not. It's true. This is God's word. Speaking of God's word, let's now go into part one of, of today's passage. Um, part one, we're calling God's word versus man's tradition. And this is, we're now looking at Mark chapter seven, verses one through 16. That's going to encapsulate part one of our story. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Um, I'm going to be reading from the NASB 95 tonight. If you have a different, good, solid version of the Bible, you're going to want to have that on hand. Although most of the passages I will have up on the screen so you can follow along. It, it won't, there'll be some parts missing just so I could fit it all on the screen onto the slide. But for the most part, all the words will be there. Okay. Part one, a little intro and then a little background is going to come first. So intro and background. Here's what it says. Verses one through four of chapter seven, give us our intro and our background on this first group Jesus is going to address. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers 
and copper pots. That's Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Now, who were these Pharisees and scribes coming up from Jerusalem? And how did they know to go to Jesus? Most likely, they had been requested by other members of the Pharisaical sect. Because, you know, the Pharisees, they're, they're, they're actually a, a sect of Judaism at the time, Second Temple Judaism. And um, it's, a, it's a layman's sect, okay? So they're not priests, but they are wealthy, usually former business owners. And um, they uh, are sort of religious elites. Everybody recognized them as being very orthodox and uh, being very you know, strict observers of the Torah and uh, the the laws contained within. But as we're going to see, they also had some other traditions that they held that were not actually part of the Torah. And actually, they're going to start to be problematic for them, as we're going to see. So um, these Pharisees coming up from Jerusalem were probably requested by the Galilean Pharisees. Now, um, John MacArthur points this out in his great, excellent, wonderful commentary on the Gospel of Mark. It's a two-parter. I highly recommend it. And uh, two-volume set. And what he says is that he points out that this encounter in Mark 7 comes very, very quickly after Jesus has just fed 5,000 men miraculously. Um, So he's just done that, and he did that in Galilee. So Jesus is immensely popular, although his popularity wanes and waxes um, over time. And actually, it has his popularity has just hit its apex and it's about to start coming down as Jesus starts getting into some more of his harder sayings, some of the sayings that were harder to handle. But right now he's still very popular and the Galilean Pharisees are jealous of him. So they've requested most likely the, they've requested the Jerusalem Pharisees along with the scribes who were the experts in, in the law, the lawyers to come and investigate Jesus as to his popularity, why is he so popular? And as we'll see, they're going to try and trip him up. They're going to try and trap him, as as Pharisees are wont to do. Now they get there, and immediately they observe the disciples breaking their extra-biblical traditions. And I say extra-biblical because the traditions that the Pharisees adhered to are kind of rooted in Scripture, but they're not actually biblical. As we talked about previously, the Pharisees had this body of tradition that they held to that ran parallel to Scripture that actually has its roots back in the the days of Ezra, when Ezra led uh, captives back, former captives, former exiles from Babylon back to the, um, or I guess at that point it might have been Medo-Persia, but they went back to, to Jerusalem and they brought out the law, the Torah, and they started reading it. And there was this great revival and this return to adherence to the Torah. And as they would read it, the history tells us that they would also annotate it and they would write the these the priestly interpretation, the scribal interpretation in the margins. And that was the root of what eventually became this body of extra biblical tradition and explanation that originally started out just sort of as explanatory notes, kind of like if you have a study Bible, but grew into this body of of uh, what they viewed as sacred ritual that was not um, God-breathed, 
but actually began to rival the scriptures in importance. And practically speaking, as we'll see, actually began to overshadow the the scriptures in importance. Later on, in um, I think the second century, these traditions became known as the Mishnah, which began to be collected into what uh, we now refer to as the Talmud. But at this point, it was just sort of this tradition that would be handed down from one generation to the next and was very important to the Pharisees. But what they're doing then is they viewed the traditions as very important and anyone who violates these traditions is essentially questioning their own authority, the the authority of the Pharisees and the eliteness, the elite status, because the Pharisees knew all the tradition. They knew how to observe it. And if someone comes along and essentially says by their actions, hey, the traditions aren't that important. Well, that really shakes the foundation of their elite status. What do you mean you don't have to follow the traditions? That's our thing is we've got these traditions. If you undermine the traditions, you're undermining us. So when they see the the disciples breaking the tradition, not washing their hands, that was a big deal. Now, this hand-washing ceremony, what they would do is first they would pour the water through their over their hands with their fingers up, and then they would point their fingers down and they'd pour the water over it again. And then they would wash each of their palm with their fist and they'd do the other palm with their fist. It was very elaborate. And then not only that, but they washed, uh, our text tells us they washed cups, pitchers, copper pots. Some early manuscripts say that they washed their dining couches, you know, the couches that they would sit on when they ate their dinner. So dinner time was this elaborate ritual. It was very complex and they felt like they were really doing something here. Everybody saw them do their rituals, do their ablutions, do their washing, and they were a big deal So the, the because of that. So the fact that the, the disciples aren't doing that and the Pharisees see this, the scribes see this, that's a major problem. So they catch Jesus' disciples breaking their sacred inherited tradition. And that leads us to the accusation. This is in verse 5. Here's what it says. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unholy hands? See, they're very miffed about this. They're very upset. So here's the apologetic challenge for Jesus and for the disciples and for us. How do we engage with unbelievers who believe in the Bible plus extra biblical teaching, text, or tradition. We're going to call these unbelievers Bible plus or scripture plus unbelievers because they they don't reject scripture. They don't fully reject scripture. They don't say it's not God's word. They say it is God's word, but we also have this body of doctrine, this, this extra biblical teaching text or tradition. In the case of the Pharisees and the scribes, it was tradition, but later on that became codified as a text. And of course, um, you run into all kinds of religious sects that have extra biblical teachings. So this is the apologetic challenge that is sort of um, underlying this encounter Jesus is going to have. Now, just as a reminder here, let's go back and review our three-step presuppositional apologetical process. Now, um, step one, and I, I refer to these as step one, step two, and step three, But as we'll see in scripture and in life, they're going to be done out of order all the time. I've, 
I've assigned numbers to them, but that's not prescriptive. It's it's more descriptive. It's more how I find myself when I'm in apologetic orientation and engagement. That's the procedure that I generally follow. But you're gonna it's dance. You're gonna go step one, step three, step two, back to step three, back to step one. It's a dance. They're not always used in the quote unquote correct order. So step one then is to do an internal critique or a reductio ad absurdum of the unbiblical position. You're going into the unbiblical position, you're assuming it for the sake of argument, and you're showing how the conclusions and the presuppositions don't line up. Belief A and belief B don't actually line up. You can't hold both of them without a contradiction, and you're showing that uh, the the unbelieving position is internally contradictory, internally incoherent or inconsistent, and therefore necessarily false. Step two is you do an internal critique of the biblical position. I don't call this a reductio ad absurdum because you can't refute the biblical position to absurdity. So we call it an internal critique of the biblical position. And we say, look, the biblical position actually believes, presents this. This is the biblical position to see how if you start from Scripture, you can make sense of the categories that you, Mr. Unbeliever, want to use to make your objection, and it answers your objection. So step one is showing how the unbeliever can't even make sense out of the categories that he needs in order to make his objection. Step two shows that the Bible provides for those categories and answers the objection. And then step three is an evangelistic appeal. This is where we say, look, the same Bible that makes sense out of your objection and answers your objection also says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Sometimes, as we'll see in scripture, as we'll see in today's passage, that evangelistic appeal is more of a rebuke. It's more of just a stark calling out of your opponent and saying, this is what you believe. This is nonsense. This is terrible. Um, Last session, in session three, we saw Jesus give an ultimatum. You're either with me or against me. And implicit in that is a call to get with me, to get with Jesus. What we're going to see today is there is this, uh, Jesus is going to rebuke the um, the hypocrisy of one group. And basically, the, the implicit call is stop being a hypocrite, repent, and turn to Jesus. So that's step three. That's the evangelistic appeal. So that's our three-step apologetic approach. Now, Jesus, in his response here, Jesus is going to start with what we're calling step three. Remember, step three is that evangelistic appeal or that rebuke. Jesus is going to start there and then he's going to move on to the other steps. So he's going to come out of the box swinging, punch the Pharisees right in the face, metaphorically speaking, not physically speaking. And he's going to call them out and call a spade a spade and tell them exactly what's wrong with them. Here's what he says. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. 
But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandments of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Mark 7, 6 through 8. So the Pharisees here are hypocrites. Jesus prophetically calls them out as hypocrites. And they are really doubly hypocrites. They're, they're hypocrites because their actions are external, not heart motivated, not even, they're not even doing these ablutions and hand washings and all the other things that they do from the heart because they really love God. They're just doing it for external show. They're doing it conspicuously, not out of worship for God, not out of love for God. And secondly, they're hypocrites because their precious, precious traditions are not even from God. They're man-made. So these traditions that they're trying to hold other people to, supposedly in the name of God, aren't even from God. They're basically putting themselves and their preferences in the place of God and his commands. Major problem. Not good. John MacArthur says about, um, about the religion practiced by the Pharisees at this time, quote, though their religion was directed at the true God, it was practiced in the wrong way and was therefore unacceptable to him. End quote. And that's really what we see where Jesus quotes um, Isaiah here. We really see, you know, you Pharisees have the praise of men, but your worship is unacceptable to God. So if you're trying to worship God here, which I know you're not, you really don't care about God, you're really doing it the wrong way. So this is step three. Jesus prophetically rebukes their godless, hypocritical tradition comes out the gate swinging. And again, the implicit call here is for them to repent of their hypocrisy. This doesn't, this, he's not entering their worldview yet and performing a reductio. He's not presenting the biblical worldview yet per se. He's going to do that in a second. He's just straight up saying boldly, Isaiah prophesied about you. You guys are hypocrites. Repent. Then Jesus moves to what we're calling step one. Look what he says. Remember, step one is when you enter the unbelieving worldview for the sake of argument and show how it is incoherent and doesn't, uh, is not consistent with itself. Let's see what it says. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God, commandment of God, in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. Mark 7, 9 through 13. So here, Jesus really comes at the Pharisees with both barrels. He shows them that their precious, sacred, received tradition is actually perverting and contradicting God's word, which they claimed to follow. And the way Jesus does this is really genius. So their entry point to talking with Jesus and his disciples was about the hand-washing tradition. And they're saying, you're violating our sacred hand-washing tradition. But Jesus takes their whole worldview, which 
is is which has as a foundation sort of a dual foundation scripture yes torah yes prophets writings yes the, they they believed those but they also held to these these traditions and for them they wanted to hold both together and the and and in practical terms they wanted to be able to refer to both in order to to get somebody to rebuke them so there's really this dual foundation so jesus takes half of their foundation their tradition and attacks it at a point that is that they're not guarding right now do you see jesus the the brilliant military strategist um attacks their wall where they have no guard set up and just runs roughshod over their defenses over their over their front line and uh and and humiliates them and obliterates their position what he does is he shows that their tradition at least over here with the korban rule i'll explain about that in just a second invalidates god's word so if their tradition if any part of their tradition which they wanted to view as this whole sacred body. They weren't viewing it as, you know, sort of this pick and choose type deal. By the way, because if it was pick and choose, then why couldn't the disciples just pick and choose which ones they wanted to, to follow? But but they don't. They view it as a whole. And Jesus says, uh, your tradition over here violates God's word. The whole tradition is therefore invalidated as a standard. You can no longer use it to judge my disciples. Isn't Jesus a great shepherd? I mean, he is protecting his sheep here, man. This this is so good. He shows that their tradition contradicts God's word and is therefore invalid. Now, what is this korban rule? Well, korban comes from a Hebrew word that means offering. And this is another one of those traditions that is sort of rooted in scripture, but that they had taken and perverted and twisted and turned into a cover for them to be able to sin. So in those days, what you could do, it, it was expected that a, uh, a man would take care of his parents when they entered into old age and could no longer take care of themselves. There were no um, uh, senior care facilities in those days, no retirement villages. You took care of your parents, honor your father and mother. And this was so serious that the crime for, for cursing your mother and father is death. So you don't want to curse your mom and dad. You want to honor your parents in their old age in that society, and uh, and rightly so. But they had this tradition that what you could do, let's say you had money, you had a, a, a lump of finances, and what you should do is you you should use that fi- those finances to take care of your parents. What they would allow, the Pharisees would allow, and they would practice this themselves, I believe, is... They would allow a man to say, uh, those finances, that sum of money is korban that's dedicated to the Lord. That's going to go to the temple at a certain date later in the future. Probably like, you know, when I die, it's kind of, it's going to go to the temple endowment. And my understanding of this rule is that what they would then do is they would then keep the money for themselves and use it as long as they were alive. And then it would just go to the temple when they died but in the meantime, mom and dad are out of luck. The son has the money. He can honor his parents with it. He can, you know, uh, put a roof over their head and make sure they get fed and everything. This is his parents, man. They brought him into the world. They took care of him when he was young. But instead of caring for them, he's using the money, this Corban money, and he's keeping it for himself to enrich himself. 
I mean, that's just really despicable. And it's done in the name of honoring God. You know, korban means an offering to God. So they're 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 really um they're use they're using these traditions ostensibly to worship God, but in reality, their God is themselves. Do you see how problematic this is? So you can see why Jesus says that this is invalidating the word of God. What Jesus does then, again, step one, to make it very clear, he performs a reductio on their self-contradictory scripture plus tradition system. Remember, we're calling them scripture plus unbelievers. Scripture plus. They believe in scripture plus tradition. And Jesus reduces that system to absurdity. Masterfully done. Masterfully done. And then finally... The third step that Jesus goes to is really step two. Step two is when you present the biblical worldview and show that it is internally consistent and true and that the conclusions follow from the premises, the presuppositions match up with the rest of the beliefs. Here's what it says in verses 14 and 15. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Okay, so when we're talking about the heart, the heart, biblically speaking, is the core, the center of one's thinking, emoting, and desiring, or, or will, uh, willing. The heart is is not just your feelings, it's it's your thinking and everything else. It's the core, it's the center of who you are. So just that's uh, when Jesus says heart, that's what he's referring to. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says nothing outside the man can defile him if it goes into him, but what comes out of the man defile him? Jesus intentionally leaves that point unexplained and mysterious in order to set up the question that he knows is coming from his disciples in part two. So we're going to leave that unexplained right now because Jesus does, and we're going to get to the explanation in part two. But this is step two of our apologetic process. Jesus presents the true position, and that true position is that it's what exit the body um, defiles it, not what enters. Because again, they thought that if they didn't wash their hands, ritualistically speaking, that the food was, was um, you know, that, 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 that eating was unclean. What Jesus does here is very interesting, though. He doesn't just say, so you see, washing is no big deal. He, he intentionally um, makes a statement that, that is broader than just the washing of one's hands he makes a statement about anything that enters into the body, like food-wise. Now that is going to raise questions because now we're not just talking about tradition. We're talking about something else, something a little more foundational, a lot more foundational. We're going to get to that in just a second. So um, Jesus effectively refutes the, the Pharisees and then they leave the crowds and they go into someone's house and now we, we commence with part two. Okay, part two is all about new covenant versus old covenant. Part one was about scripture versus tradition. Part two is new covenant versus old covenant. Now, I have to tell you, when I was preparing 
this lesson. When I first started studying the passage, and, and I, I do all my work, I, I start in Greek and then I translate it, and then I, I go and see what the you know the the actual Bible translators say, and and kind of make adjustments accordingly. I was not going to say much about this part. I thought this was just an epilogue, but as I started reading, I started discovering something really fascinating. This is a whole second section, and it actually parallels the first section, but um, exactly, it exactly parallels it, as we'll see. But because Jesus is speaking to a different audience, an audience of believers, his approach is modified to fit his different audience. So Jesus is giving us a double precept lesson here, and I didn't even know it when I picked this passage. But, um, you know, God's ways are higher than mine, to be sure. Okay, so here's the question, and in case you haven't figured it out yet, the question is coming from this group of believers who is the disciples. I think I, I think I did say that earlier. So this question is coming from verse 17, chapter 7 of Mark, verse 17. Here's what it says. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. Now, here's the apologetic challenge for us. How do we respond to believers who believe scripture, but don't yet see the full picture? They, they hold to scripture. They, they don't hold to any extra traditions, but there's something missing from their worldview, their biblical worldview. How do we presuppositionally address them to show them the whole counsel of God? Uh, that's what Jesus is going to do. And that's what Jesus is going to show us how to do um, in, in this part two, in part part two of the uh, the uh, the account here okay here's what it says take a look at verse 18a now again remember this is paralleling part one so in part one jesus started with step three the the gospel appeal you know the the gospel rebuke really and this is going to be another one of those gospel rebukes and he said to them are you so lacking in understanding also doesn't that kind of sound like what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He accused the Pharisees of being hypocrites and said, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? And it was just a straight up rebuke. Here though, although it's a rebuke or we might say a reproof, it's more gentle. It's warmer. You can tell Jesus is not happy with their lack of understanding, but he's not dealing with them like they're unrepentant unbelievers. Now, What's going on here? How do they not understand? Well, perhaps they were confused. That's very possible because Jesus in his previous statement about what goes into a man seems to be invalidating not just the biblical traditions, but also the old covenant dietary laws. Now that is unexpected, very unexpected because it's one thing to refute tradition. It's another thing to start messing with the Torah. That's unexpected. So we can see why they might be confused here. While Jesus is repeating these um, these three steps, I, I really want you to take a look at how his attitude is firm, but it's more compassionate than it was with the Pharisees. Now, why does Jesus seem to be frustrated with their lack of understanding? Not lack of belief, but lack of understanding. Well, if you go back in the Gospel of Mark, three times, Mark the evangelist, the author, makes a point to note that the disciples had failed to understand Jesus. We get that in Mark 4.13, 4.40, and 6.52. And now here it is again in 7.17. And guess what? 
It won't be the last time either. If you, if you were to continue reading in Mark, you'd see that Mark would make more points about, uh, he would mention again and again how the disciples fail to understand Jesus. So this is step three. Jesus reproves his disciples for the lack of understanding and legitimately calls them, without saying the word, I believe, to repent. You know, they're sort of, oh yeah, sorry Jesus, I, I guess we don't understand. Can you help us understand? So then Jesus moves to step one. Again, mirroring his progression in part one, where he went step three, step one, step two. Now he's going from step three to step one again. Here's what he says in chapter seven, verses 18b through 19. Hope you can follow along. I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you, but hopefully you can see that Jesus is, um, use, the, the numbers aren't as important, but Jesus is using the same apologetic method, the same presuppositional method with, with his disciples, but he's adapting his approach. That's what I really want you to see here. He's adapting his approach for believers. Here's what he says. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. In other words, it goes into the toilet. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Now, how is this possible that Jesus can straight up um, do away with an Old Testament, Old Covenant dietary law? This raises all kinds of questions for us, just like it did with the disciples. How can Jesus do this? Well, you have to understand the purpose of the dietary laws. The dietary laws highlighted God's holiness and the separation that man's sin caused and the rift that it caused between him and God. But when the heart is cleansed, those laws are no longer needed. As Jesus even says here himself, don't you know that food going into you can't really defile you? Well, Jesus, if they can't defile us, then why is that one of the laws? Is that just arbitrary? No. The implicit teaching here is that the dietary laws were to show, were to um, were to to warn about the reality of uncleanness. But real uncleanness comes not from food, but from the heart. And their own experience should have taught them that the dietary laws were temporary in nature, or pointed toward toward a greater truth. I mean, think about it. Their own experience. Every time they went number two, they should have been thinking about. Well, maybe not every time, right? But I mean, hey, don't people do? Great thinking, we know when they're on their uh, on the you know when they're indisposed. Um, that's a great time to start thinking lofty theological thoughts. In fact, it's a little known fact. Maybe it's a well known fact actually that Martin Luther received his epiphany when he was reading Romans chapter one while he was in the tower. Do you know what they did in the castle in the tower in the in the monastery in the tower? That was their bathroom. That was their outhouse. So. Jesus is pointing to their own experience that they have when they go to the outhouse, when they go relieve themselves and saying, don't don't your experiences kind of teach you that those dietary laws aren't really getting at the heart of the matter and that the heart of the matter is the heart? Now, Paul understood this in Romans 14, 14. He straight up says, nothing is unclean in and of itself. And the apostle Peter should have understood this because in Acts chapter 10, Peter is praying and he has this encounter with an angel. He has a vision where a sheet is lowered from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals. And the angel says to him, take and eat. 
And he says, I can't do it. I've never eaten anything unclean. And the angel says, you know what he says? He says, do not call unclean what God has called clean or declared clean. I'm, I'm miswording it, but that's what he, essentially what he says. Well, wait a minute. When did God call these animals clean? Oh, he did it right here in Mark 7, 18 through 19. Peter should have known that those animals were clean. Paul got it. Peter didn't, but he did get it in Acts 10, 15. Now, Jesus is straight up retiring this law. I mean, there's no other way to view this. If Jesus is declaring all foods clean, if Jewish believers can now eat bacon, that is a major change. But how is that any different, you might say, to what the Pharisees were doing? Because the Pharisees were contradicting or nullifying or invalidating the law. But isn't Jesus doing away with the law too? So what's the difference? Well, first of all, there's the matter of authority. The Pharisees don't have the authority to do that. Secondly, the Pharisees were doing it in sin, hypocritically, not out of love for God, and not fulfilling the law. They were actually disobeying the law. Jesus, on the other hand, is fulfilling the heart of the law because the heart of the matter is the heart. Sounds kind of corny maybe, but that's really true. Jesus is fulfilling the law. And therefore, he's able to transcend the law and actually able to put the law to bed. There's this great saying that I really like. I got it from a friend of mine, Paul Kaiser. And it's this, Moses wasn't fired. He was retired. The law of Moses, the old covenant law, is not abrogated. It's not nullified, but it's fulfilled. And as Jesus alludes to here, it is put away. It's fulfilled and no longer applies because the reality, the greater reality that it pointed towards in Christ is now here. So step one then, so to speak, is Jesus performs a reductio on their idea that food could defile. And in so doing, he's actually performing a reductio on the Old Testament, Old Covenant dietary laws. It's really amazing to see Jesus doing this, but I don't see any other way to interpret this. I really think that's what Jesus is doing. And then finally, step two, which is when you um, present the biblical position, the true position, says this, or is this, here's what Jesus does. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. That's, that's uh, Mark 7, 20 through 23. See, this is what the Pharisees didn't get. They were focused on the externals and not the heart. Jesus is now instead introducing a new covenantal way of thinking about ethics. Jesus is presenting a true position, a new covenant position, that it's evil hearts and the actions that flow from them that actually defile a man, not food. Jesus is inaugurating a new covenant ethic. Now, very quickly, I just want to show you the parallels here between these two passages, um, partially for no other reason than I think it's very cool. So the, the audience is different. In part one, the audience is scripture plus unbelievers. They have scripture plus tradition. But in part two, Jesus is dealing with scripture minus believers. They believe in scripture, but they're, they're missing the whole picture. In both, there's a challenge. The Pharisees publicly accuse Jesus' disciples. The, the disciples, on the other hand, privately ask Jesus to explain um, his, his teaching. 
And then Jesus goes step three, step one, step two. With the Pharisees, he rebukes their hypocrisy. With the uh, disciples, he reproves their lack of understanding. With the Pharisees, he performs a reductio on their faulty system of scripture plus tradition. With the disciples, he performs a reductio on the old covenant food laws and their idea that food could actually defile someone. With the Pharisees, Jesus teaches that it's not what goes in, but what comes out that defiles. With the disciples, Jesus teaches that it's not unclean food, but an evil heart that defiles. So a lot of parallels there. The problem with the Pharisees was they were elevating man-made tradition above scripture. The problem with the disciples is they didn't understand man's true need for a new heart, not clean food. The message that Jesus had for the Pharisees was this. God-breathed scripture trumps man-made tradition. The message Jesus had for the disciples was that new covenant hearts trump old covenant laws. So a lot of parallels there. Very, very cool. Now, let's look at some parallel systems today, just two very briefly, that I'm going to call scripture plus systems. So they hold to the Bible, but they have another parallel system of tradition or doctrine or texts that go along uh, with it, with scripture. So the first one is Roman Catholicism. Maybe you've heard of the doctrine of scripture alone. Scripture alone comes from the Protestant Reformation. And the reason why that uh, was so emphasized is during the Protestant Reformation is because the Roman Catholic Church was elevating its sacred tradition above, or, or at least making it equal to, but functionally above, that of scripture. And uh, then there's, you also factor in the idea of papal infallibility, and that's another, you might lump that in with tradition, but it's but it um, certainly is a rival to scripture, okay? Um, another one of these systems is that of the Latter-day Saints or Mormonism, although they prefer to be called Latter-day Saints now, which that's fine. I, I hesitate to call them saints, but um, simply because biblically speaking, you know, to a Christian, the word saint means something differently, but, you know, they can, they can be called what they want as long as we understand that we're talking about the group that used to be called Mormons. And uh, what they have is they believe in the Bible, whether the, the versions that they accept are the King James Version, which is fine. Um, not my favorite translation. I don't think it's the best, but a good translation. They also believe in the, that the Joseph Smith translation is accurate as well. And there's, there's problems with that one, but, um, but then they also hold to other texts, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and then there's other teachings by Joseph Smith that they believe are authoritative for them. Now, what's our goal when we're engaging with uh, an objection from someone from one of these systems? We do the same thing that Jesus did. We need to ask good questions and we need to know what the Bible says so that we can discover and expose how they're un our extra biblical teachings or traditions contradict scripture. If you can find that fatal flaw, you can do the same thing Jesus did and show them that their traditions um, are not from God and therefore their system is invalid. And then of course you present the biblical, the biblical truth. What about what Jesus did where Jesus modified his approach for believers? What about when we're dealing with believers? And let's, let's call them scripture minus 
believers. Maybe you don't like that term. That's fine. But just understand that I'm talking about people who hold to scripture, but they have a less than complete view of the big picture of scripture, or they don't yet understand the implications of the new covenant. For example, there are people who believe today that we still have to hold to old covenant laws. Now, I'm not saying those people aren't believers. If you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, if you believe the gospel, look, you're a Christian. What I'm saying, though, is that um, that would put someone in the same category as the disciples were here, where they were still confused about the old covenant dietary laws. What's our goal with believers who have an incomplete view of Scripture? Our goal should be to show how the new covenant trumps the external commands of the old covenant. And for reference there, you can go to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4, or Hebrews 8, 13. But really what you're doing is you're performing a reductio for them on those Old Testament laws, old covenant laws. What you're saying is, look, these laws are external in nature. They can't um, address the heart. So dietary laws, uh, Sabbath observance, these can't address the heart. You know, the Sabbath observance was, um, was important. It was the sign of the old covenant, but who's our Sabbath? Or what I just gave it away. What is our Sabbath in the new covenant? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Read Hebrews four. It's the rest that we have in Christ where we can cease from our labors because Jesus labored for us. Jesus suffered for us and saved us. So salvation is by grace. Um, so we're dealing with believers here. Our goal is not to destroy them ever. It's not to destroy the unbeliever either, but uh, it is to firmly but warmly teach them the full picture of Scripture. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. <laughs>